Hello and welcome. This is an audio recording of an IFG live event. Hello and welcome to this episode of the IFG live podcast. I'm Jess Sargent, a senior researcher here at the Institute for Government, joining you from the IFG's London studio. It's been another week where Brexit has dominated the news. Brinkmanship and bust up steals and deadlines. It really is just like the old days. And at the centre of it all, after a pretty rocky year, is Northern Ireland. Against a backdrop of worsening relationships, the executive has had to cope with the pandemic, the protocol and the legacy of three years without ministers. And as the UK and EU enter into another fraught period of negotiations, the future of the Northern Ireland protocol hangs in the balance. The stakes are high, the UK government is threatening to take unilateral action and the DUP is threatening to bring down the Northern Ireland Assembly. Oh, and there will be elections to the Northern Ireland Assembly in May 2020, if not before. So this podcast will explore the view from Northern Ireland. Can the UK and the EU reach agreement before the end of the year? Will the Assembly survive until next May? What are each party's prospects at the election? And what other challenges will the executive be facing in the next six months? To discuss it all, I'm delighted to be joined by an excellent panel. We have Dr Claire Rice, researcher and writer on Northern Ireland politics, Professor John Tong, uh, Professor of Irish and British Politics at the University of Liverpool, Aoife Moore, political correspondent for the Irish Examiner, and Alex Kane, columnist and commentator. So let's start with the big news this week on the Northern Ireland Protocol. Lord Frost made a speech in Lisbon reiterating the UK's proposals for a new renegotiated protocol, and the European Commission set out its proposals to address some of the problems that have been identified. So let's start with that. Could you tell us a bit a, a bit about what's in the EU proposals and whether they are as far-reaching as Mara Sefcovic, the Vice President of the European Commission, promised? I can ask that question perhaps to John, if you're happy to answer it, John. Yes, certainly. Yeah. Um, in terms of the, the meaningful reforms that came from the EU, and they have been signalled for a number of months, uh, the British government was very confident that the EU would uh, begin to drop some of the checks that had been promised but I, I think the difficulty with what is proposed, it's very substantial from the EU, reducing customs checks by 50% is a major change. Uh, the EU is now moving towards what it termed a risk-based approach. I think the difficulty will be in terms of the Unionist parties in Northern Ireland as to whether they buy into that, because half a sea border in the Unionist psyche is still a sea border. For the Unionists, it's about sovereignty as well as trade. And so I don't see the DUP and the TUV uh, the two hardline unionist parties in Northern Ireland buying into the changes that have been uh, offered. Uh, I suppose that Sir Geoffrey Donaldson, as leader of the DUP, will pocket the changes that have, that have been offered, but but continue to demand more, particularly in the run-up to an assembly election. So it is a significant change. I'm not sure that the EU will concede that much more, but I, you know, this is only the beginning of another set of negotiations, which which could spill. I mean, <laughs> heaven forbid us. <laughs> uh, this this setting negotiations could spill into the new year, uh, it could be very, very protected indeed. Excellent. And Alex, um, what's your view on the, the DUP position here? Do you think there is a way that we could reach an agreement between the UK and the EU that they would be satisfied by? Or do you think uh, they won't accept anything less than a complete removal of the protocol? Well, I, I think um, from Geoffrey Donaldson, the DUP leader's position, he wants a deal because he wants to be First Minister. That's why he's willing to give up his seat in Westminster. He used to be a, a, an Assembly member. He's always wanted to be a really big player in Northern Ireland politics. This is his last opportunity 
to be so. And that's always important, important when it comes to negotiations. Sometimes it's not just the, the broader political motives of the parties and people involved. It's sometimes the personal motivations. And I think that's key for anyone who's involved in what's happening right now. It's Jeffrey Donaldson wants to be First Minister, which means he needs a functioning assembly. I think the, the general view of the DUP, although they may not, may not say it all that publicly, they want the assembly to survive because if it goes down again this time, the chances of getting it up in, in the short term, let alone the long term, are remote. So they want to keep it going. And I think that's a huge bonus. The problem is, from the, the, the unionist perspective too, though, is that there's division there. That uh, there's a section of unionism, a section of loyalism, a section of the Orange Order, um, a section of the, the unionist or loyalist paramilitary groups that backed the Good Friday Agreement back in 1998. They're not happy. They want a much tougher line. Some of them uh, would seem to me to be happy enough to let the whole structures fall completely once and for all, to let the Good Friday Agreement go once and for all. Um, the, the, the slightly more moderate Ulster Unionist Party probably backs the DUP position in this and wanting to keep the Assembly going. And that's going to be the huge difficulty. It's fine. It, the British government and the EU can offer all sorts of things, but the problem is they are not dealing. They, the EU deals with the UK government. They deal with each other as equals to deal with each other speaking with one voice. The problem is when it comes to having to then come up with something that keeps unionism happy, you're not dealing with a united, harmonious body. You're dealing with a fractured organisation, some of which want a very hard stand, some of which want a slightly softer, some of which are willing to, to find some way. They're, they're willing to look for a middle ground. And I think that's going to be enormously difficult. John touched upon it there, I think, uh, earlier. There is this sense that, you know, can you ever get enough that for either the British or the EU to say to unionism collectively, are you happy with that? No, that is not going to happen. So what they have to do is find something that's enough for both Jeffrey Donaldson and the Ulster Unionist Party to say to their voters, to say to their grassroots, look, there's enough. It's better than it was. It's much better than it used to be a year ago. Let's give it a go. Although Lord Frost has perhaps softened some of his rhetoric on the possibility of triggering Article 16, so taking unilateral action to override some of the measures, it seems like uh, that threat still remains. Is that something going forward, Alex, that the DUP is going to be keeping the pressure on Lord Frost to, to keep as an option? Is there a point where if they don't think there's enough progress being made that they will call on the UK government to, to, to push that button and, and take that action? Well, it is a temptation, and certainly they, they will up the ante on the issue, but they know they know that even triggering Article 16, that, that act alone could bring down the, the Assembly. If the government doesn't trigger Article 16 and, and the DUP and other unionists are still annoyed, that in itself could bring down the, the executive. So it's going to be, it, it, it's an enormously difficult thing, but it goes back to what I was saying earlier, that, you know, pressure is a, is, is a very odd thing in Northern Ireland because, again, you know, the only pressure, the, there's no, the unionists can blame everyone. They blame the United States, they blame the European Union, they blame the Irish, they blame anyone they can think of in alphabetical order. But the real problem they have is with the United Kingdom government. It is with Boris Johnson. It is with Lord Frost. These are the people who, who delivered the protocol and now turn around and say, oh, well, we didn't actually mean that at all, you know. We've got Dominic Cummins yesterday, we have Ian Paisley MP today saying, oh no, we've, Boris Johnson told us way, way back in December 2019 that this was, I think, as Ian Paisley put it, that very odd term, this was just for the semantics. And he basically told me he was ready to rip it up, tear it up. You know, how, do you do, how does unionism deal with a government which has already on three occasions since 2017 has, as unionists have put it, betrayed it? 
It's problem now is that all its eggs, all the DUP eggs, all the unionist eggs are back in Boris Johnson's basket. And this is this is a man. They they have had a lot of difficulty within the past. So even if some sort of deal looks possible for unionism, they cannot guarantee that Boris Johnson will actually be on their side when the final moment comes. Yes. And Uh, That obviously wasn't the only news on the protocol uh, this week. There was a decision um, in the High Court um, about some of the DUP's tactics to try and oppose the protocol. Claire, could you tell us a bit bit more about what happened there? Yes, absolutely. So this was a very interesting case that was taken forward, um, effectively trying to challenge the DUP's decision to prevent representatives attending um, North-South meetings of essentially North-South Ministerial Council and North-South bodies. Um, This was part of uh, a wider strategy that the DUP had been using effectively to try and undermine the protocol. It stems back to February of this year with um, what was initially a five-point plan that became uh, a a dual agenda under Edwin Poots then. And the outcome of that particular case was that effectively the decision not to send representatives to the North-South Ministerial Council was unlawful. Now, the way things are at the moment, um, the court has effectively used language that has said, well, we can do more, but it would be very unwise and very uh, disruptive and problematic for us to take any further steps. So currently things are in the DUP's court as to whether or not they will actually listen to that decision and start to send their representatives to meetings of the North-South Ministerial Council, or if they will continue with the strategy they have been deploying to date. Um, so it's a very tense time, I guess, if, you, if you've been following this case, looking at what the DUP will do, because, of course, if the DUP refuses to send representatives, then that starts and process a whole other chain of legal events, which uh, could be very serious. Let's just put it that way. Thank you. And we've spoken a lot so far about the Unionist Party's position on the protocol, uh, but obviously there are uh, three other parties in the Northern Ireland Executive. Eva, could you tell us a bit more about what some of the other parties think about about these proposals and the, the Northern Ireland Protocol more generally? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the message very strongly has been from the Green Party Alliance, People Before Profit and and Sinn Féin, that the protocol is the solution for any problems that Northern Ireland was facing uh, in the wake of Brexit. You know, they have reiterated this time, time again. They have visited Dublin on numerous occasions. They have met with Dublin's Minister for Foreign Affairs, Simon Coveney, on numerous occasions. They've spoken at committees here uh, in Dublin. On the issue, uh, just this morning, Michelle O'Neill, the leader of Sinn Féin in the North, uh, says that she wants to have another resolution in the Northern Ireland Assembly where all the parties who support the protocol could come together and reiterate that support. They are very united on this. It seems to be now, even in the last few hours, that the DUP and the, the more right-wing TUV are outliers. We are hearing you know, very early findings from the leader of the UUP um, that you know they are but warmer. They're not exactly delighted, but he, there are they are not. We are now seeing signs that um, they could maybe be moved. It really appears that with the when it comes to the protocol, this is a DUP and TUV hell that they're prepared to die on. Now, I think it's worth also mentioning that the DUP is hemorrhaging voters um, in any poll that we've had across the north in the last couple of months. You can see the traditional, what would have been traditional DUP voters are on one side moving 
more towards the centre. They're losing votes to Alliance, young people, people my age, young Protestant people who are very concerned about housing, health, jobs and education do not have time or interest to be squabbling about uh, the protocol when there are more pressing bread and butter issues. They're sliding more into the centre towards parties uh, like Alliance, and maybe the Green Party, whereas on the other side, in especially more loyalist communities, communities who feel like they have been left behind uh, by the Good Friday Agreement, people whose lives have been made worse off, they feel, from the Good Friday Agreement, are also abandoning the DUP. So I think uh, for all the political games that are being played in London by Boris Johnson, we need to remember there are political games being played here by the DUP. The DUP have previous in this, you know, they know their base very well, or at least they used to, and that's what they're trying to shore up. They know that the cultural issues um, that young unionist loyalist people feel in Northern Ireland are what's going to get them some votes. You know, they were bigging up uh, issues with the protocol when we had business and lobby groups coming forward to say, actually, the protocol's not great in the way that there's a bit more paperwork. We'd rather it wasn't uh, this way, but it is the best solution for us. And that is why, you know, we weren't seeing the issues in supermarkets that they were seeing in England and other places. So, you know, you would nearly see the DUP at one point. Someone said to me, Turkey's wishing for Christmas in terms of it making out that uh, the problems were actually worse in order to talk down the protocol. So, it is very much where the DUP and the TV are in isolation on this. Um, so it is very hard <laughs> to get certain parties to agree, to agree on something. And uh, they have managed that in one way uh, with the protocol. I think we're going to see a lot more of that in the next few days. Absolutely. And what's the mood in Dublin? Is there optimism that we're closer to an agreement than we might have been before? Or is there still kind of grave concern about what might happen if, if we don't need reach a deal and those Article 16 measures? I would say, and I've covered Brexit um, for the entire time I've lived in Dublin, about four years now. And I would say within Fine Gael, within Simon Coveney, the Minister for Foreign Affairs here in Dublin, and the Tanisha, the Deputy Leader, former Taoiseach, Leo Varagher, this is the least, uh, I don't know how would I put it, the least patience I have seen from them. Um, there is no love lost um, between Simon Coveney, Leo Varagher and Jeffrey Donaldson and the DUP. Uh, they, the DUP, Jeffrey Donaldson made it quite clear on his first visit to Dublin to meet the now Taoiseach Michael Martin that there was no love lost. Um, they felt Simon Coveney and Leo Varagher had gone to Brussels and thrown their weight around. Um, that they had used Northern Ireland as a pawn. And uh, Simon Coveney and Leo Varagher argue the same thing about Jeffrey Donaldson. This is the least amount of patience I have seen. There has been a lot of, you know, tepid words in the past, like cool heads, loud diplomatic language. In the last few days, we are seeing Simon Coveney and Leo Varagher fraying at the edges. You know, we had Leo Varagher on the radio saying that the, that the world needs to know that Britain is not someone that you can negotiate with. You know, we'll see Simon Coveney tweeting very angry about Lord Frost, you know, Lord Frost giving these briefings but not dealing with the issues in Brussels, saying, you know, it's not diplomatic and it's, it's not appropriate. So patience is wearing very, very thin. And the only person who seems to have a camera head on it is Taoiseach, Michal Martin. He's a former school teacher and he is a very cool-headed person. Um People often remark here that he would remind you of a priest. <laughs> so he was out last night. He said, you know, he approved 
of the new proposals for the protocol, he urged Britain to negotiate in good faith, to accept these proposals. He was in government at the time, the Fianna Fáil government, at the time of the Good Friday Agreement. He understands the Good Friday Agreement and he understands what's at stake in the North uh, when we talk about these issues. And he kept coming back to the say and he kept saying the people who matter most are the people in Northern Ireland. And I think everyone here uh, on this podcast would agree that there's been a lot of talking about Northern Ireland and very little talking to Northern Ireland when it comes to Brexit. So I think the Taoiseach is now head of government, um, has kept a full head, but definitely things are a lot more tense here in Dublin than they have been in the past. Absolutely. And I think uh, the EU was very keen to emphasise yesterday that its proposals were very much informed by the concerns of stakeholders in Northern Ireland rather than necessarily a response to some of the UK government's asks. Um, John, do you think there's a chance of a deal? What are the kind of issues that might hold it up? Yeah, I think there's every chance of a deal. I think that common sense will prevail uh, on all sides. I mean, Lord Frost has been pretty belligerent over the last few months. I mean, I've heard him speak at Oxford University at the British Irish Association, heard him speak at the Conservative Party conference, read his Lisbon speech this this week, and he he keeps in many ways upping the ante. And obviously, the 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 difficulty that he's thrown in now is about the European Court of Justice and whether it should have oversight, uh, should be the ultimate arbiter of uh, any protocol mark two that really throws you know issues of sovereignty uh, into the mix Sinn Féin's Declan Curdy this week called it you know throwing a, a dead cat into the uh, into the arena um, that is going to be very very difficult indeed because the EU is not going to give up lightly the idea that the ECJ the European Court of Justice should be the ultimate arbiter of any future fallout and I suspect there will be future fallouts over the operation of the protocol. And if you look at Lord Frost's speech this week in Lisbon, it was very much about issues of sovereignty. He was praising Brexit while saying that there's no mileage in talking about Brexit anymore in, in electoral terms. Um, he has become, as I say, you know, increasingly noisy on this. And in many ways, the emollient language that we initially heard uh, about friendly relationships um, has, has disappeared. I, I agree with uh, with Eva that I actually think that UK-Irish relations are probably as, as bad as they've been uh, for several decades. Now, that is that is retrievable. If the, if the UK was to react warmly to what the EU moved on yesterday, then, you know, I can see a deal being done relatively comfortably. But ultimately, you know, we all know how we've got here. The British government... <laughs> When it signed the uh, the protocol, when Boris Johnson agreed the protocol, we all know the motivations behind that. It was about getting Brexit done. It was about Northern Ireland being expendable for the sake of a get Brexit done slogan and a, at a general election, which was very, very successful in electoral terms, knowing that then there would have to be this unpicking of the protocol subsequently. Uh, and as Dominic Cummings and Ian Paisley, two very different sources, have revealed, you know, <laughs> It's pretty disreputable. The British government really had no intention of honouring Protocol Mark 1. The question begged is how different Protocol Mark 2 will now be. We've seen a big movement from the EU. How far now will Lord Frost, who's pretty hard line on this, shift towards the EU position? Absolutely. And uh, I mean, I guess we know that both sides will enter into some intensive discussions in, in the coming weeks and in months. And I suppose best case scenario, there is a deal that is acceptable uh, to both the UK, the EU and the key stakeholders, including the political parties in, in Northern Ireland. But 
if there isn't, one of the things that the DUP has has spoken about is potentially um, a resignation um, that could potentially question bring the question of stability of the executive um, into question. Yes, well, I suppose there's a few different ways that that might come to pass, um, should it end up going in that direction at all. So the DUP has indicated that if the protocol remains in any way in its current form, that um, they feel there would be grounds then to collapse the institutions. Um, of course, now we have these proposals and it really is a matter of, of wait and see in terms of how they are received and what happens in terms of the, the further and ongoing conversations between the UK and the EU to that end. But if it was the case that the DUP decided that the, the conditions were ripe for the institutions to be collapsed, essentially what would more than likely happen is that the First Minister would resign. And because of the way that the, uh, the, the leadership within the Northern Ireland um, executive is designed, it's a joint ministry, which means that whenever one member um, of that ministry resigns, the second one does also. So I'm referring here to the First and Deputy First Minister. So if it was the case then that Paul Given resigned, then that would be an automatic resignation for Michelle O'Neill from Sinn Féin. And effectively what that does then is it sets in motion a countdown, um, during which time either another individual has to be nominated to that position um, or effectively an election has to be called. Now, there is legislation going through Westminster currently um, as a result of the New Decade New Approach Agreement, which is aimed at actually trying to lengthen the, the, that period of time, you know, to, to basically put in, in place some buffering mechanisms to make sure the institutions don't collapse, but that effectively the, the political parties themselves have a bit of wriggle room where they're able to talk through problems, try and find solutions to any issues they're having and get back around the table and back into the executive and the assembly. But the way things are currently, that hasn't been passed yet. So effectively, if uh, if the deputy or if the first minister, sorry, was to resign from their position, then we would be on a countdown very quickly to an election, and it would effectively be a snap election um, in such a scenario. Whether or not that will happen, it remains to be seen. Um, but certainly, looking at the wider political climate, I think it's fair to say that it's probably more a talking point at the moment in terms of collapsing the institutions as opposed to really anything that could be treated with a degree of seriousness. I think for the DUP in particular, given the travails that they have had over the last few months, given the, the issues that are there in, in a more general sense in Northern Ireland, as across the UK in terms of the pandemic, and thinking about Brexit and the protocol as well, in a more general sense, there's no public appetite at the moment for the institution collapsed in any way. Uh, the DUP will be particularly mindful of that, especially going into an election where they're facing challenges from sites that they haven't seen for a very long time. So when you're looking at the likes of the UUP, for example, the TUV, they're under extreme pressure. And then there is a, a growing public discourse and the media discourse as well around the semantics of First Minister and Deputy First Minister. And that's focusing a lot on the idea of, well, if Sinn Féin ends up coming back with sufficient numbers following the next election that they could hold the, the position of First Minister, that somehow that would be a, a, some form of a constitutional type issue or crisis for the institutions within Northern Ireland, which of course isn't the case. They're effectively the same position. But politically speaking, there is a, is a dynamic and a, a sense around that, that it would be somehow a, a catastrophic loss to unionism if that were to happen. Um, so the short answer um, to, to your question really is that there is the potential there for it to happen. There are mechanisms there where the institutions could be collapsed. But I think ultimately it's more unlikely than likely, certainly at this point in time, that the DUP would pursue that course of action.
Absolutely. So we might not see an election just yet, but we do know that there will be one in May 2020, 2022, if not before. John, can you tell us a bit about what the polls are looking like at the moment? Well, the polls are looking bleak for the DUP in terms of its position uh, holding the first ministership at the moment. You know, the DUP are currently on 28 seats and Sinn Féin are on 27 seats within the Assembly. So, And they're also, at the last Assembly election, the DUP and Sinn Féin were only separated by uh, one percentage vote. So things were tight anyway. The, the polls, and we've got to be very, very careful about this because it's just it's one polling organisation, Lucid Talk, which does a, a quarterly uh, tracker poll, uh, and it's, a, it's an online poll. But the poll, the polls suggest that Sinn Féin are well on course to take the first ministership at the next election because there's a three-way split, a nearly equal three-way split in the Unionist vote between the DUP, the Ulster Unionist Party, uh, and the traditional Unionist voice, the, the, the TUV. Remember, it's the largest party that takes the first ministership. Now, you can co-badge, and officially, first and deputy first minister, there's nothing, there is no difference in the posts, but in symbolic terms, for Unis to lose the first ministership would be a, a grievous blow. And yet that looks very, very likely indeed. I, I think that the DUP would need a minor miracle to hold on to the first ministership. I do still expect them to be the largest party, Unis party, I should say, at the next uh, election, nonetheless, I think they will rally under Jeffrey Donaldson. And it could be closer than, than some people, or certainly the current polling suggests. But it's still a very, very tall order for the DUP to try and hang on uh, to that first ministership. That begs the question, would the DUP go back into Stormont on the other side of an election in reduced circumstances? And would Jeffrey Donaldson sign up to be deputy first minister? Or would the Ulster Unionist Party go in and... and uh, take the deputy first ministership. The DUP, I agree with both what Alex and Claire have said, that the DUP leadership doesn't want to collapse Stormont. That, that is, is fairly obvious. But the DUP base are much less enamoured with Stormont these days. Westminster has overridden the DUP views on same-sex marriage, on abortion, and Westminster is going to legislate on Irish language uh, this autumn as well. Add to that as well, Westminster legislation on non-devolved matters like a uh, statute of limitations, a de facto amnesty. So what the DUP had in 2017 was a first ministership and veto rights via petitions of concern. What the DUP has in 2021 is nothing like that. And what the DUP is confronting in 2022 are far reduced circumstances. Given that, the DUP base will be more amenable to collapsing storm than was the case in 2017, when actually the DUP was very upset when Sinn Féin walked out of the institution. So things have changed, and I, I do fear for the future of the institutions in that respect, even though I don't think for one minute that Sir Geoffrey Donaldson, his DUP leader, would, would give up his Westminster seat to come back to nothing in Belfast. He wants the institutions to remain, but you know he's got to take his party with him. Absolutely. And one of the tactics that's been talked about uh, to prevent... Uh, the the uh, first minister going to Sinn Féin on, on the amongst the unionist parties is this idea of a potential uh, pact between between them. Alex, how likely do you think that is, or is this just talk? I, I think it's actually just talk. Oddly enough, I remember John and I uh, had a conversation about it back in May. I think you know because I'd, I'd heard on the grapevine that a number of unionist parties had been considering this, and it, it's it's a technical, torturous route 
it would be chaotic and I suspect it wouldn't actually solve any problem because it's very odd. It's, it's, it's this weird thing. If you're going to go into an election under existing rules and you don't get the result you want, you turn around and say, well, we'd like to rewrite the rules at this point. I think other than inside your own uh, you know, cabal or, or, or voter base, you cannot explain that to anyone else. So I, I think they will stand back uh, from, from from that particular option. I think Jeffrey will, will do his best to try and work the minor miracle John talked about there. And yes, I agree with him, and I've said this before, I think the DUP will do much better, much, much better uh, in, the, in the actual election than some things suggest. But I think, Jess, it's maybe just uh, worth saying to your to your audience who, who won't understand this particular nuance that why... If, since first and deputy first minister are co-equal, they have exactly the same powers. Why it's so important, you know, why unionists would balk at the idea of having to be uh, deputy, because that would only occur in a situation when they didn't get enough votes for the top job. And the real, I think, problem for them, it's one of perception. You go back to the assembly election in 2017, when for the first time in their history, unionism failed to be or come back with a majority in, in an assembly or parliament. That was a huge blow for them. The first time I think they've realised in, in ongoing decline, which has been there for maybe 20-odd years, the votes going down, the, the, the non-unions were growing slowly but steadily. Suddenly, wham, bam, right in the middle of, of other problems, unionism woke up to an assembly in which, while there may have been a unionist first minister, there were only 40 unionists out of 90, so unionism no longer spoke for the, the, the majority, every time the First Minister went, Ar- Arlene Foster at the time, on behalf of Northern Ireland, increasing numbers of people would say, well, no, you're not. You're not speaking on behalf of Northern Ireland because the majority did not vote for unionist parties. So that was a massive blow. So to come back three, four, four years later, you know, and, and maybe it's an early election, maybe it'll be 2021, the centenary year of Northern Ireland, to suddenly discover they no longer have the votes to even make the choice on First Minister in perception terms, in psychological terms, that would be a massive blow for them. And I think that's why that's why they're having so much consternation inside all the various unionist parties. But my gut instinct, and I've been around a long time, I, I, I would be, in, in terms of commentary here, I mean, I, I outrank all of the others in terms of age. I've been around for so long, I've seen it all before. My gut instinct would be that if it's up to the DUP or UUP to make the call on Deputy First Minister, and, and get the assembly back up and running. All of my instincts, all of the conversations I've had, all of the experience I've had, would tell me that whether it's Jeffrey Donaldson or Doug Beatty, who's the leader of the Ulster Unionist Party, they would go. They would find a way of, of accepting the post while spelling out to their grassroots, "Look, it's exactly the same. It's a bus ticket thing. We can stop anything we don't want, but we need the assembly. It's important for us. It's important to have devolution." The only thing, the only thing that could really wreck that particular um, uh, scenario or, or, or outcome would be if the TUV, which is um, it, it's the most right wing of the unionist parties, uh, has only one seat at the moment, uh, or had only one seat for the past eight or nine years. Jim Allister, the polls are suggesting he's gone up to about 13 percent. If the TUV polled unexpectedly well, if, if, if John and, and Aoife and Clara write that there's some sort of swing against the DUP and Jim Allister and the TUV are the main beneficiaries of that, and he does well and it's up to him, that's when I think you're into possible uh, complete bringing down of the Assembly. But I don't think that's likely to happen. I think whatever they are, whether the election's in a few weeks' time or whether it's next May, 
I suspect John's right. I think it will be um, the Sinn Féin is the largest party, but I still think that the DUP or UUP will agree to the deputy role. Interesting. So we talked there about Sinn Féin polling well. Aoife, I know you're writing a book on Sinn Féin, who, who did particularly well in the Irish elections last year, and you mentioned some of the issues there around the kind of housing crisis and social issues that contributed to that boost. To what extent do you think the issues in the next election will, will be the same, or are there some specific Northern Ireland issues that will create a slightly different campaign? Yeah, well, I think, you know, uh, you talk to anyone in the North and the first thing they'll say to you is about the health service. You know, we have seen how the, the collapse of Stormont uh, over the last few years and the effect it's had on the health service. We saw, you know, with the start of COVID-19, there was genuine panic. We saw people being treated in ambulances. They couldn't even be brought in the, um, the hospitals because there was so little room. The nurses um, have... Uh, been on strike outside Stormont um, at one point or another the last few years. So I think what most people would say to you when you ask their biggest concern about living in Northern Ireland, they would absolutely say um, that it does the health service or other issues, you know, jobs and education are the other two. I'm from Derry City and, um, you know, I think there was over, uh, I think there's been over a hundred, over a thousand uh, job announcements in the last um, few months um, and none of which have been for FOI. You know, there's never enough jobs uh, in the Northwest as far as uh, the people there are concerned. So, and we are also concerned about the brunt that Brexit will have uh, on jobs and opportunities as well. There's a serious brain drain in Northern Ireland. You know, we are, uh, we send our children, I am one of them, away to university in the UK or in the Republic, and many of them do not come home because the jobs and opportunity are not there. And the reason um, that people don't come home is because for a long time, I think young people at saw Northern Ireland is a bit backward. You know, we didn't want to be plagued with the same issues um, that our parents were. And that's something that's going to be tackled. We are seeing slowly, but surely, you know, things are coming on to, uh, when it comes to uh, progressive issues like equal marriage and like abortion. And the, the those kinds of things, Sinn Féin has been able to put themselves on the right side of history, so to speak. You know, Sinn Féin have been very prominent in their support of LGBT. You know, Michelle O'Neill, when she became the health minister, reversed the blood ban um, for men who have sex with men as one of her first actions. She was then awarded a Pride Award uh, that year for her work. They have been walking a very strange tightrope when it comes to abortion. I think this is one of the most interesting things about Sinn Féin North and South. Sinn Féin North and South, um, by anyone's measure, are quite different parties. Um, They are incredibly liberal, very out and proud socialists in the Republic. They have built this image of um, this workers' party um, where republicanism, although the Irish unity message is 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 clear, the republicanism takes a back seat. That's not where the base is in the Republic. The base in the Republic is young people in the middle of a housing crisis living in their box rooms, their parents' box rooms, paying extortionate rents, they have in their housing spokesperson, Owen O'Brien, an incredibly uh, intelligent, well-informed housing spokesperson who basically tears the Irish government apart um, whenever they make a plan to tackle the housing crisis. The Irish government cannot get a handle on the housing crisis. And Sinn Féin believe, and I know because I've spoken to TDs down here, they know that the housing crisis is what's going to hand them government in the south eventually because the government here can't get a handle on it. 
In the north, it's quite different. There is still a large Republican base there that they need to play to in places like Belfast and Derry and South Armagh. There is the Republicanism still plays a big part. That's why they have issues when it comes to things like abortion, because they know that their voters in the north are not as liberal as their voters in the south. They're not as young, for instance. Um, They're not as popular with younger people uh, in the north as they are in the south. Um, Although they are riding a wave on both sides um, of the border. And you will see now, uh, as they head under the election, Sinn Féin will get a lot more cautious um, when this happens. They don't want anything to come in between the way of their success. We're seeing it now in the Republic. You know, they're the biggest party in the doll, although they're not in, in government. And now we will see that there are very there are very little radical, you know, big uh, suggestions, but they are, you know, becoming a bit moving towards the centre. I would say they're definitely not centrist, but moving towards the centre on certain things because they know the government may be heading down the road for them. And they're trying to appeal to as many people as possible. I would argue we have seen before uh, in politics north and south that when you're trying to appeal to as many people as possible, you're probably going to appeal to less people in general. But that is the way that they are trying to operate now. I think they have a great chance of being in government north and south. Uh, and I think that would be a seismic shift in Irish history. I don't think Sinn Féin 10, 15 years ago ever thought that they would be in government uh, in Dublin this soon and I think they are making huge amounts of preparation already we know they're holding selection conventions in Dublin for the next general election which is not scheduled until sometime around 2024 so the preparation is well underway and I think the others are right here we could be we could be very much in the possibility of seeing a shifting government north and south and I think that would represent I can't, as a dairy person as well, I can't, in a million years, I never thought I would see this. Um, So I can't underline how strange uh, it would be to see Sinn Féin in government north and south, but there is a very real possibility that is what's going to happen. Interesting. And what about the other cross-community parties? Claire, can you tell us a bit about what their pitch at the next election might be? Yes, I think we're set for a very interesting election in that regard, because if we look back over the elections that we've had in the last few years um, in Northern Ireland, we've had them at all levels from council right off to the European Parliament. And the kind of, it was termed as the the, um, the alliance surge or the alliance wave, you know, that this resurgence of the middle ground in Northern Irish politics over the course of those elections. And it centred particularly on the alliance party, but I think really it was a bigger question around, you know, what people are thinking about politics in Northern Ireland and whether or not those those typical or more traditional parties kind of at the extremes of the political spectrum here are really doing enough to satisfy the, the interests and the, the demands and the wants of, of the people that are, are here in Northern Ireland and, and that they are representing. Now, the difficulty is with the, the type of, of politics and political system that we have in Northern Ireland that... <laughs> Essentially, what it does is, is there's an incentive there to encourage people to vote within unionist and nationalist blocs again. So while we might have seen in other elections this this rise at the centre ground and you know more, I guess uh, bread and butter type politics and issues coming to the fore as opposed to the, the bigger constitutional questions necessarily dominating the way people were thinking. Actually, whenever it comes to an assembly election, those constitutional type questions, and I use that in a, in a very broad brush sense come to the fore again because people think in in block mentality 
by and large, you know, there's there's the general criticism of the the consociational consociational type model of governance that we have here um, as being one that incentivizes people to vote at the extremes, to vote within blocks, and effectively the power that a person has in their vote is much more strongly uh, diffused whenever they they vote either in the Northern Irish case for a unionist or a nationalist um, individual or party. So it's really, really difficult to say actually how all of that will play out into the next election because, again, this is against the backdrop of things like Brexit, you know, wider conversations around Northern Ireland's constitutional future, you know, the bigger question around, you know, who's actually going to get the jobs done that need to be done here, you know, around healthcare, education and so forth. And essentially, if we've got a model which is is prioritising the ability for, for bigger blocks to have more power within those structures, then there's a question mark over, well, what is the incentive then to vote for centre ground type parties? And how that will actually play out in the next election will be really interesting to watch, I think. Absolutely. I think there's a tendency sometimes in Westminster to think that the protocol is the only thing that the Northern Ireland Executive is dealing with. So I wanted to talk about some of the other challenges um, that they'll be facing. Uh, John, you mentioned um, earlier uh, some of the legislation around the Troubles Amnesty. Could you explain for our listeners kind of what the issues are there and why it's been so controversial in Northern Ireland? Yeah, I mean, the, the issue of dealing with the past and achieving justice for the families of victims during the conflict, it's never been fully resolved. You've had various agreements, Stormont House Agreement, Fresh Start, uh, various attempts to create a system of, of, of justice. What it has involved uh, has been continued prosecutions, continuing investigations that were done by the Historical Investigations Unit and then the Legacy Investigations Branch of the Police Service of Northern Ireland. So what Brandon Lewis, the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, proposed recently was a radical departure from that because what Brandon Lewis proposed was a, a statute of limitations, which to all intents and purposes is an amnesty so that any prosecutions that are currently underway would continue uh, those alleged to have perpetrated crimes during the Troubles, but there'd be no future prosecutions. The PSNI, Peace Officer Northern Ireland, would stop investigating crimes relating to the Troubles. So that was monumentally controversial. One thing that united all the political parties in Northern Ireland was opposition to Brandon Lewis's proposals. I was slightly surprised that he, that he brought them because it was always going to be trouble. And I still remain slightly sceptical as to whether he will follow through with legislation. The, the government presented it as look, this stops the continuing prosecutions of our veterans, our brave armed forces, etc. Okay? But obviously, you know, it also stops the prosecutions of anyone, uh, you know, far more, uh, there were far more acts carried out by, by the IRA and, and other paramilitaries during that conflict. There'll be no further investigations or prosecutions. Now, it should be said, the chances of successful prosecutions are vanishingly small these days. So there is a certain logic to what is proposed, but it's monumentally controversial because it, it abandons what little hope there was uh, of justice for those relatives of victims of the Troubles. So it's slightly surprising as well that a Conservative government in particular has brought this forward. If it ends up on the statute, but it would get through Westminster, but it would be in the teeth of very strong opposition from the Labour Party at Westminster and very strong opposition from all the political parties in Northern Ireland. 
So it will be very, very interesting to see whether Brandon Lewis does indeed take this forward. At the moment, it's, a, it's, a, it's still a consultation stage, but it's monumentally controversial, as you know, any legacy issues tend to be within Northern Ireland. Absolutely. And there's another potential clash brewing between the UK government and, and the Northern Ireland executive over abortion. Um, as we know, when the Northern Ireland executive was not sitting, the UK Parliament passed some, some legislation to, to liberalise um, abortion services there. But it seems that the executive is not making as much progress as the UK government would like. Aoife, could you tell us a bit about how you expect that to play out? Um, how long is a piece of string? <laughs> I actually interviewed Brandon Lewis about this not that long ago um, over Zoom, and he was incredibly frustrated. Um, he made that clear. He was losing patience uh, on this issue that you know that the Westminster had stepped in where Stormont had failed, and yet Robin Swan, the Minister for Health, had still not brought. The services forward. I've actually just seen in the last few minutes that Belfast High Court has found that between April 2020 and March 2021, the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland failed in his duty under Section 9, which means the result has been no abortion services uh, in Northern Ireland are also due to a failing by the UK government. Um, I honestly don't feel, uh, at this, as a young woman, uh, a young Northern Irish woman, I don't feel like I will ever see. Um, this sorted until there is another election, at least. Um, I don't think anyone holds out any great hope that this will be sorted. Robin Swan is the health minister. He is not prepared to do what he is supposed to do in terms of bringing this legislation forward, bringing these services uh, into being. Sinn Féin, although they claim to be um, in uh, pro-choice, they have their own issues uh, with it. You know, they've been, as I alluded to this earlier, back and forth on the issue, the SDLP allow for a vote of conscience. Um, so it is, it, it's, and when you see public polling, you will actually see that the public is very much behind the pro-choice stance. It is political parties uh, in an attempt to shore up their bases. They're worried about electoral politics. All the while, this isn't a problem that stops. It just exports the problem. Um, anyone who's lived in Northern Ireland would know that when you say that someone had, when a girl had to go to England, everyone knows what that means. I mean, people used to say that when my mother was at school, I said it when I was at school. The problem doesn't go away, it just exports the problem. Uh, it makes women uh, less safe and it's traumatic for everyone involved. I wish I could say I had <laughs> some political insight about how this gets solved. I don't know what the answer is. I think after the next election, we might see some change. Um, if, you know, things go the way the polls are going but and there is a different Minister for Health. But at this stage, I cannot see anything changing. Thank you for that. And I mean, the one issue we haven't talked about much yet, um, but has obviously been dominating not only the work of the Northern Ireland Executive, but uh, governments across the world is, is COVID. Alex, what's your sense of how well the executive has dealt with those challenges? And kind of what challenges might they now be facing going forward as we move out of lockdown and start to deal with the consequences? Well, I, I, I think given the circumstances of the executive and the nature of the, of the relationship between the parties and the executive, and again, the circumstances when they came back to power because the executive was down, um, some of you listeners may not know, for three years and then came back in January 2020 with an agreement which I suspect none of the parties actually read in detail. So keen were they to rush back in and be seen to be doing something. So I think 
given that sort of background, they probably did uh, as, as best they could, better than some of us might have expected them to do. But they, they did it by basically ignoring all the big issues. And there were a lot of arguments. That they, they argued over uh, everything in Northern Ireland. doesn't matter what it is. N name the issue. It will always come down at some point to orange and green, north and south. And there was a, a clash between the, 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 the DUP and Sinn Féin in particular over whether you should follow the guidelines taken by the, the Dublin, the Irish government, or whether you follow the guidelines taken by the, the, the Westminster government. And that meant that there was a lot of dithering, a lot of let's not make any decisions, a lot of, oh, let's hold on fire, or let's see what's going to happen. Although having heard uh, the, the, read the parts of the recent report that came out on Monday, about how the British government had handled the pandemic. I'm not sure the executive was very much worse in terms of not being able to make coherent decisions. But if you ask them what happens next, the biggest problem, and it was here before the, the, the pandemic, it, it's finance. The, the, the health service, I think we have something like, I have a population of about 1,800,000 with something like 325,000 who are on waiting lists. The, the, the health service is probably one of the worst funded in Western Europe. It's nobody's fault. There just isn't enough money to cope with the sheer scale of the problems they have. They knew this when the executive was first established, or when the, the new assembly was first established in 1998, and they began to look locally at the, because it became health became a devolved matter. So many huge decisions, Jess, at that point, which should have been discussed, which should have, where decisions should have been made, where priorities should have been set out, where the, where the executive, when they finally did get up and running, should have been able to say, right, this is our, these are the clear priorities for dealing with health in Northern Ireland. Even then, it came down to a situation of clashes, again, particularly between the DUP and Sinn Féin, over what should and shouldn't be done, what should be a pri priority and what not a priority. And I think what, no matter what happens, no matter what happens, whether we have the election, the executive survives, whether the assembly keeps on rumbling along, the biggest problem we have, and I, I'm not sure if it can ever be resolved. I, I, I noticed Aoife's optimism about the, or hoping that there might be some change come the next election. I, the panel will know, your listeners won't, my reputation in Northern Ireland is as the most pessimistic commentator in the business. So I, I, I'm not saying anything that sets me, you know, my imagination go, yeah, we've, we've opportunities. I think the problem is in our executive, particularly as it's been with the DUP and Sinn Féin dominating the executive, in essence, you have had two governments in the one executive with competing and contradictory agendas, not wanting to help each other, not wanting to do anything to make life easy for each other. I do not see that changing. And if that is going to be the case, then it isn't just legacy or Irish language or abortion or health service or education, whether we should have properly integrated schools, which we should have had, and which would have been the easiest thing to do, but we ended up with some nonsense called shared education rather than genuinely in integrated education. My fear will be that we will continue in this mode of, of, of the contradictory competing semi-governments in one executive refusing to rise to the challenge and make the decisions that need to be made. And what makes it even worse, I suppose, in one sense, is that it goes back to what uh, Claire and John, I think, were talking about in terms of, of voting and, you know, the, the rise of the middle ground. 23 years, 23 years after the first Assembly election in 1998, the middle ground still represents less than 20%. That, that huge... Um, nationalist unionist bloc is still at 80%. And unless you see change there, unless you see that that rise of the middle ground, unless you see a rise of new new parties, new voices, new 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 faces ready to deal with the with the post 1998 challenges, 
then we're just going to trundle along forever and ever and ever. And it's terribly depressing. Okay, and final word to you, Claire. Do you agree with Alex's pessimism? Um, And is there anything we can do to try and uh, improve government in Northern Ireland? That's a million dollar question, isn't it? Um, I think to a certain degree, I agree with Alex for once. Um, So, yes, I think there, there is definite cause for concern around the idea of lack of compromise. I think things are so fraught between the political parties at the extremes of the political spectrum in Northern Ireland currently. That it, it wouldn't be unexpected for that to continue beyond an election. Indeed, you know, if the election itself is a particularly tense experience for the two parties, you know, if there is that challenge whenever we get to the other side of it, you know, around the question of whether or not uh, a unionist would accept the, the office of a deputy first minister um, or the position, sorry, of deputy first minister, you know, that's going to create a very different set of circumstances for starting off that mandate than what we saw in January 2020, whenever the, the parties finally got back into, into the assembly and into the executive. And I think it's extremely difficult to break away from the fact that politics in Northern Ireland is almost on a, a continuous cycle of like a boom and bust where things go well for a little bit. And then the, the deep-seated historical tensions start coming in, constitutional questions. You know, Alex mentioned there about the green and orange type issues. They start to fade in again. Things weaken. Relationships get tense and more difficult. And then we're on a downward spiral then until something happens, something capitulates. There's there's a while without a, a, a government, then a new agreement is reached. Things all seem to be rosy again and off we go. And I think it's very difficult to see how that won't be a continuing cycle, again, partly as a product of the type of government that we have here in Northern Ireland, but also as well, uh, playing into the, the point that Alex mentioned about the, the, the personalities, you know, there's there's a lot of, I think, very old traditional sort of views still prevalent within Northern Ireland, which isn't... Um, I'm not trying to advocate the point that they, they shouldn't be there because they obviously represent um, a section of, of thought and uh, political ideology in Northern Ireland. But at the same time, society is changing. Um, I'm sort of picking up on the, the issues that Aethel was talking about. You know, those sorts of issues are, are starting to feed into the discourse of what's happening within the Assembly. But is it fair to say that the Assembly itself is actually reflective of where the mindset of the general public is at the moment? I'm not so sure. And the, the greater that disconnect becomes, the harder it's going to be for effective governance to happen. So it'll be a really interesting, if difficult, time ahead. But um, yeah, I, I think I have a, a, a degree possibly of, of more optimism than I think Alex did um, around the future for it, because um, I, I think ultimately, if you're in any way interested in Northern Irish politics, you have to have a, a, a sense of hope or some degree of optimism, at least that things will get better. Great. And that's it for this edition of IFG Live. My thanks to Eva, John, Alex and Claire. If you like this podcast, please check out some of our other episodes. We've got a fascinating Net Zero themed episode with a panel, uh, including the Prime Minister's COP spokesperson, Allegra Stratton, and an in-conversation with Gavin Barwell, someone who had a front seat row during the Brexit battles of the last Parliament. You can listen to all our podcasts on ACAS, Spotify and iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts. And check out our weekly Inside Briefing podcast too. And there is a bit of Brexit on that this week, of course. As always, you can find all our work on instituteforgovernment.org.uk. Until then, many thanks for listening. Thank you for listening, and we hope you've enjoyed this edition of IFG Live. Please do subscribe to hear more. 
And if you'd like to know about our upcoming events, please visit instituteforgovernment.org.uk slash events. Thank you.